So. <laughs> anyway, Animate, that's our series for, that we've been in for a few weeks now. We'll be here for a few more weeks. Um, then we're going to go into a Christmas series. Yahoo! Believe it or not, all that stuff's coming. Uh, but Animate to Bring Life, we've been talking about uh, God breathing life into us and into our spiritual walks and things like that. We've discussed the use of our, our, our imagination in the area of scriptural truth, wrapping our imaginations around God's truth, finding that inner sanctum with Jesus, that place where we're, we meet with him and we are transformed by his, his truth. Um, we've said that this is old Christian stuff, this is not new stuff, um, that um, neuroscience confirms what we're saying is true, that the mind and heart are actually one. There's not an 18-inch uh, journey. Uh, you might feel things here, but it's all happening up here, right? The, the mind is literally changed, literally physically changed by prayer uh, as new neural, science, neural uh, connections are made, right? That we know that Paul wasn't crazy uh, saying, let your minds be renewed by truth. You know, it, they literally are. There's something going on there. And so we've looked at all this stuff. We've looked at how we operate out of a concrete image of God in our heart minds, right? Um, with our, uh, that that may, may or may not differ from what we say that we believe. You know, we can say that we believe a lot of things, but it doesn't really come out in how we live, right? Um, better, or better said, maybe we could say that what we, what we say we believe isn't really what drives us, really isn't what drives our decisions, what drives how we are. Hey, Mandy. Amen. <laughs> Andy's back. Um, it's, <laughs> now where am I? Um, but this image, this image in our heart minds does. That's what drives us and how we make decisions and how we live life and all that stuff. What we experience as reality dictates our response to life. Um, by the way, that's my mom and dad walking in really late. Let's just all look at them. <laughs> Sorry, mom. Um, <laughs> but it's... <laughs> ah. That is too much fun. But what we experience as reality dictates our response to life. And today we're going to look at how that image of God influences our image of self, right? How do we view ourselves? So this sermon is aptly named Forming Me, right? Forming Me. And before we start that, I'd like to read an excerpt from um, an article from the New York Times, and it's called The Benefits of Church by T.M. Luhrmann, if I pronounce the name correctly, and it says this, any faith demands that you experience the world as more than just what is material and observable, right? We believe that. This does not mean that God is imaginary, but that because God is immaterial, or we would say spirit, those of faith must use their imaginations to represent God. To know God in an evangelical church, you must experience what can only be imagined as real, and you must also experience it as good. I want to suggest that this is a skill that can be learned. This is a skill and that it can be learned. We can call it absorption, the capacity to be caught up in your imagination in a way you enjoy. What I saw in church as an anthropological observer was that people were encouraged to listen to God in their minds, but only to pay attention to mental experiences that were in accord with what they took to be God's character, which they took to be good. 
I saw that people were able to learn to experience God in this way and that those who were able to experience a loving God vividly were healthier, at least as judged by a standardized psychiatric scale. Increasingly, other studies bear out this observation that the capacity to imagine a loving God vividly leads to better health, right? For example, in one study, when God was experienced as remote or not loving, the more someone prayed, the more psychiatric distress she seemed to have. When God was experienced as close and intimate, the more someone prayed, the less ill he was. In another study at a private Christian college in Southern California, the positive quality of an attachment to God significantly, significantly dis- decreased stress and did so more effectively than the quality of the person's relationships with other people. It's pretty incredible. Can I get a drink of water? Joe? Thank you, brother. Um, Think about those words. Think about all that was just said in that article as we talk today. And I want to begin by uh, praying. Father, we thank you that you are here and you are real. And that even though we must grasp you with our minds, our hearts, um, that we may not be able to reach out and touch you like the person next to us at this moment in time, we do know that you are active and real and and present in this world. And so we ask that your presence would be here in a very thick, recognizable way this morning. I have no idea what most of these people in this room are going through right now. And and even those that I do, Father, there's only a little that I know. I don't know their innermost thoughts. I don't know their innermost struggles. And I don't know what they are going through. I only know mine. But you know it all. And you know what each one of us is facing. You know the fears. You know the scars. You know the pain. You know the accomplishments. You know the high moments. You know the low moments. You know the in-between moments, Father. And we ask that you would form us and shape us this morning a little bit more as yourself, as who you are. And that our, how we look at ourselves would be in line with that. And we thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we've been saying that truth needs to be incarnated. It needs to be made flesh, right? That to, it needs to become a concrete reality in our heart-mind as we walk through life. Sculptors and other visual artists illustrate this for us. It's a sort of a mental image being formed in paint or in stone or in clay or whatever the medium they work in. And as you think about that, think about how God forms you. Right? Think about how God forms you throughout life. Let's start uh, with Genesis 2.7. It says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now I want to stop there and imagine that. If you can imagine that God is standing over the dust pulling it together, pushing it together, maybe adding water to, you know, whatever it is, they just puts it together, fashions all the details, the eyelashes, the eyelids, the hair, the, the, the curves of your ear and all that kind of stuff. And then over that mouth, he bends over and he, he breathes his life into him. That's, that's an intimate picture. Man animated by this intimate, close act of God forming and breathing into his nostrils. Psalm 139 says, For you created my inmost being. 
You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. And I know that full well. That's a pretty cool verse, right? That's pretty positive. So he praises God for how wonderfully God made him. You know, your grandmother probably knitted. I think a few of you knit. I tend to think Lisa Jennings would knit. Is she here this morning? She seems like a knitting kind of person. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bidding knitting at home. Yeah. But your grandmother probably knitted, right? And, and, and it's an intimate act that absorbs all attention, right? You really get into it. God's works, which are us, are wonderful. And you think about that. God absorbed in the knitting, and when finished, he said, that's what? Very good. Let's say that again. He says what? That's? Amen. What did he say about the rest of creation? He said, that's good. Right? And he looked at us, and he said, that's very good. And then he looked at me, and he said, that is awesome. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But (laughs) um, I still have probably have mascara in my hairline from last night. Anyway, uh, but like the artist finishing a beautiful painting or drawing, at some point you stand back and you say about it, that's really good. And if I add one more stroke of paint or one more whatever, it's going to be too much. It's going to ruin the picture, right? It's going to muddy it up. Last week we said our relationship with God is mediated by our image of God, our own personal image of God, and our emotions associated with the concrete representations of of God in our minds. They're all associated with them. And to some degree, we have twisted false images of God that we've grown up with or we've been fed or whatever it is. So it's no wonder, we said last week, it's no wonder that we're passionless sometimes in our faith when our image of God is a false image, right? But sometimes those images are actually fairly good and they are shaped by our experience. For instance, it's easy to accept God's grace and God's love if you had a father growing up who was gracious and loving. My father was, and it was very easy for me to understand the grace and love of God. But if your father was abusive, if if he abandoned your family, it may be a constant struggle accepting God's love in your life or believing he won't abandon you or won't leave you to your own, right? You may be full of anxiety all the time. You may be always trying to prove yourself because of these things. See how important it is? Like Like moms and dads staying together? How important is that? It's reflective of God. So we have this image of God formed by cognitive belief and formed by life experience and a self-image formed also out of the crucible of life and they are intimately linked. You can't pull them apart. One of the reasons that we have trouble celebrating who we are you know, and living in confidence and being satisfied or, or, or feeling and experiencing love and grace is because we developed this unlovable self-image. But we are to love ourselves, not to sound all goofy and weird, but we are to love ourselves. Not in the worldly way that you, you hear people say, love yourself, love yourself. No, not that way, not in this narcissistic, selfish, unhealthy way but really in a sort of maturely confident, humble way, right? 
Love your neighbor as yourself. The as yourself suggests that you actually take care of yourself and do good things for yourself. That you don't eat too many potato chips like I'm trying not to do. Right? That you do good things for yourself. And then you do that also for other people because you know it's good for you. So it must be good for them. Right? But things happen to us. Things happen to us all throughout life. Experiences bring negative messages which root into our heart minds and we allow them to define who we are, to define our image of self. Experiences form self-image. Experiences are one of the things that form self-image, right? And if the experience is positive and true, good, that's great. If it's, it's, if it's false and negative, well, that is bad. That's not a good thing right? For instance, as a child, my parents praised my artwork. So it it formed a very positive image of my creative self, part of my self-image, and it's something I've never doubted about myself because they fed into it, right? Good images. In comparison, I have a friend whose mother was capricious. She was One minute she was kind, another minute she was hurtful and angry. She was abusive with her language. She destroyed her daughter's belongings in fits of rage. Uh, You know, you think about all that, you think about living under that, what message does that leave a child, right? It, It says to us that authority's arbitrary, that it's dangerous, that it's mean, that those who are supposed to love and protect me suddenly turn and hurt me. And trust is impossible to live with. And those of us that know these kind of people say these things to them all the time and we get frustrated because they won't listen because it's not the information that's going to change them. It's, on, it's somebody else loving them, caring for them in a positive way. It's, it's reinforcing a, a, the right image, right? What, what image of God does that leave for them, for that kind of a person? That God is a capricious, untrustworthy, sort of angry God whom you've got to walk on eggshells around and is impossible to please, right? And what does a person become in that environment? They become neurotic. They become full of shame. They become frightened. They become distrustful. They become unable to accept love. They, they become self-loathing, whatever it is. They become depressive. Their God and self-image, both false and intertwined with one another, are, are working against them in life, right? So even if I read my Bible every day, which you should be doing, I, and, 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 I, and you believe all the right things, you say you believe all the right things from your Bible, right? As an adult, what I experience to be true in the concrete experiential image of my heart may be different than what I'm saying I believe. The same goes for my self-image. I know that I shouldn't carry those things from childhood, but I constantly live out of them. They constantly undermine me, right? You might not want to be a people pleaser, even though you grew up in an environment that developed that in you, right? You should learn to say no, but just knowing that you should say no does not override the images of self which drive you to do that for other people. Some people, or some women, believe that they are just there for sexual gratification of men because they had an abusive or absent or distant father, right? 
Some people believe, feel fated to be a failure. They feel unimportant. They feel they can never fully trust someone or love someone. or They can only get value by success. And, or they'll always be in bondage to an abusive relationship or an addiction due to the negative forming experiences of life. If, if you're alive this morning, you're saying, yeah, this is all true. But you can't love that person. Right? You cannot love that person. That unhealthy, needy, idolatrous self-image is unlovable. We've been around people that are uber needy, and you're like, ah, get away from me. Right? Well, some of us are that person. We're all that person to some extent, by the way. Because it's not, it's not the real, the reality that you should be living in, Right? It's not truth about you. It's not what God created you to be. And blaming others doesn't help us as we get older, right? We like to look back and blame mom and dad or blame the the principal or blame blame a teacher or blame, blame the bully we grew up with or whatever it is. Blaming others just doesn't help. It doesn't help us. Because as an adult, you are called to submit yourself to God's transformative work on that self-image to, to allow Him to change you and transform you. So how do we not only cognitively know, right, but live in the reality of who we truly are in Christ? Firstly, we have to read these verses and we have to realize, and honestly, and this is not saying that I'm better than anybody, you are a masterpiece. You are an absolute masterpiece. God's forming you and sculpting you right now. And now, I didn't say that you were perfect. (laughs) I didn't say that you were always nice or you were always honest, but you are a masterpiece, right? God's forming you. He's sculpting you right now like an artist with each stroke of pastel or whatever it is, starting from a blank page. He's working on you. God formed you from nothing, and He is continually, continually working on you. God created you, right? But He didn't just create you and then leave you to life. He knitted you together and is currently absorbed in every detail of forming you still, right? Like the artist at the canvas and the sculptor at his clay, he is at work in you. And you you know that sculptors, you're watching this guy right now, sculptors get clay in their pores. They get clay underneath their fingernails. They smell like the clay when they sculpt. I used to sculpt, and I remember I loved that smell of clay. The artist gets pastel on her fingers as she pushes the color into the paper and she moves it around with her thumb or her forefinger or whatever it is. Pastel residue all over her hands while she's doing this. And that is a visual image of what happens each second of your life with God's sculpting hands in your heart. Sustaining you. Giving you breath. Whispering in your ear. Transforming you. But we usually have a very disconnected image of God. We really do. He formed us. We agree with that. You know, we go back to Genesis 2. and We, oh yeah, God made us, right? He formed us. We agree. But in our image after uh, all that, after that initial formation, he detaches himself. And he leaves us to the dogs. And what happens to us? We get all chewed up. 
by life and there's no sculptor there to reshape us or reform us as we simply just wait for Jesus to return and save us from this evil world. Romans 8.28 tells us, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him who have been called according to His purpose. Now that's a very positive message. And it's in, the, it's in the continuous tense, isn't it? The present tense, the continuous tense. Cognitively and informationally, I know that's true because I read it right there and I'm supposed to say it's true because I'm a Christian and I'm a good Christian, right? But notice, it's an active, ongoing image of God for people, for all of us. And it's possible to believe it cognitively, but never concretely experience the intimacy of God working for your good right now. Not to have confidence that. So you have to ask yourself, what is your image of God? What is your true image of God? And then really intimately tied and inseparable from that is what is your self-image in light of your God image or in light of your Jesus image, we might say. They are intertwined. We are made to be in fellowship with God, right? We are made to be in fellowship with Him. And in Him, we find real worth and real value. Not all that garbage out there that tells us that. To the extent that my image of God is askew, my image of self will be askew, right? The truth is, God's constantly involved in my formation, and He says to me, you are my child, you are my work of art, I'm not some abstract philosophical thought out there. I am here. I am shaping you. I am forming you. I am getting my hands dirty as I sculpt your mind and your heart into my image. Realize, too, that a piece of art is also an extension of the artist, right? You artists out there in the crowd, you know this, right? Oftentimes when, a portrait, when you're doing a portrait of somebody, it'll come out resembling the artist. Artists tend to work themselves into the images we, we create. God's an artist leaving His imprint on us. He, we are made in His image. Right? Yet I am still a unique masterpiece. I am still an individual. Right? Being made into Christ-likeness doesn't mean I lose my individuality or I lose my personality. It simply means that I take on the goodness of God's character and God's heart in my life. But usually our image of God, uh, in our image of God, we have made Him limited to some sort of cosmic plan which doesn't deviate whatsoever, that it doesn't change, that there's no back and forth and all that kind of stuff. But his involvement with us is an intimate act and it is constant interactivity with us. He is, he is constantly there with us, right, working. Think of the story of, of Sodom and Gomorrah where God's mind was changed. Think about that. God's mind was changed. His plans with a little p change. But his plans with a big p don't, Right? God will be glorified among all nations. That's a plan with a big P. That's not going to change. God will reestablish His kingdom in full on this earth. Plan with big P. That's not going to change. But in the matters of life, we affect Him and He affects us. 
It's hands-on. It's interpersonal. It's interactive. Right? Now, some of us believe God in, in the potter and clay analogy has this coercive, you know, unilateral control over the clay that he makes it, that he forms it, and that's it. Then he leaves it, right? And that no matter what happens in life, that clay, you know, is exactly how God shaped it to be. Which, by the way, if you take that to the tenth degree, that makes God responsible for all the evil marks that are left upon us. The marks of abuse, the marks of rape, the marks of hurt. In our image of God, He makes some for heaven, and then He makes some for hell, and He's fashioning everyone, and then He's stamping on some to go to hell and some to go to heaven. And then, and for, for those of us that are not supposed to go to hell, that we're Christians and we're on the inside, He looks at us and He says, be, be thankful that's not you. But where's the justice and where's the love in that image? So it's kind of a presumptuous image, Right? And when we ask that question of others, they always quote to us Romans 9, 20 through 21. It says, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who has formed it, did you make me like this? Why did you make me like this, right? Why'd you do this to me? Why'd you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Other verses translate special purpose and common use as a vase for flowers or a pot to cook beans in, right? And then other translations say a jar for decoration and a vessel for throwing garbage into, right? But all translations communicate both vessels are useful items. Both of them are. Some more than others, but not how you would think. Get rid of your decorative jar and your trash can, and which one are you going to miss the most, right? Get rid of Vinny and get rid of your trash collector. Who are you going to, what are you going to be upset about Sunday morning, Monday morning, right? Sorry, Vinny, you're not as important as my trash collector. <laughs> well, yeah, Mary would miss him. <laughs> I don't know, maybe not. No, no, no. Anyway, no, I'm just kidding. It's not saying, though, it is not saying that, you know, one's going to be kept and the other one's going to throw out. Or one will go to heaven and one will go to hell. That's not what it's saying. In context, the passage actually means probably the opposite of what we've been taught in church growing up. Let's take it in light of Jeremiah 18, where the writer uses the same imagery. He says, I went down to the potter's house and I saw him working at the wheel, but the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best, best to him. Then the, one, uh, the, then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you, Israel, as the potter does? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. So the potter's working. There's a mar. He reforms it into a new creation, Right? And so this potter image compared to ours is more of an accurate picture of God, isn't it? He's skillful, he's caring, he's reworking the clay. If If it's not reflecting the image that he has for it in his mind, God's free to change his mind. He's free to change things, work on things. See, in this Jeremiah passage, God's bringing judgment on Israel due to their disobedience, right? This is a judgment passage. But there was always time to turn and repent, always. Why would he call him to do so otherwise? 
God's free to change his mind concerning blessing and judgment. There's there's nothing fatalistic. There's nothing final about it. About God's prophecy of judgment in this context, God was constantly saying to Israel, if you turn and if you repent, I will heal your land. I will do it. This is a promise if you do this. Remember, Jonah preached judgment on Nineveh, right? But the people listened and they repented and they were spared. Something happened. See, Christians aren't fatalists. We're not fatalists. There's there's always hope for change in our hearts. That's why when we look at people on death row, we say they could change. There's a difference in the way that we look at life. So the potter clay analogy isn't this unilateral unilateral control over the clay where he, he forms one for heaven and one for hell, leaving them both to be chewed up by life until he returns. No choice, no life, no interaction. That's not how we see it. It's about God's incredible flexibility with the clay. He's his constantly forming hand in our life and the response of the clay in his hands. How I respond to him. The interpersonal interplay between father and child. The question is, do I respond or not? That's the question. Do I respond or not? See, all of us are marred. We're all marred clay. We're born into this sinful nature, aren't we? You know, physically, psychologically, emotionally, whatever, we're all marred. Maybe all three. We're born into this corrupted state and the evil acts of others feed into our formation. Remember, everybody is spiritually formed. Everyone. Everyone on the earth is spiritually formed. Whether it's good or bad is the question. So this state we're in, God grieves over that, but the marks don't affect His love for us. They don't affect His love for us. That's why we're not being duplicitous when we say God loves you the way that you are. But he's asking you to transform. He loves you the way you are, but you're sinful. That's not, they don't negate each other, right? See, most people just want God to love them the way they are, and then they can continue to live how they are. That's not the way that we we operate here, right? It doesn't affect his love for us. It doesn't affect his attention to detail in our lives or his ability to create something more beautiful out of me over over time, out of the clay of my life. He can rework it. And he is transforming you all into a masterpiece. That is the truth. You know, we judge what's good and bad in people. They're sexy, they're smart, they're successful, they're rich, they're poor, they are, they aren't. You know, whatever it is. But God only sees the clay. He just sees the clay and what he can make out of everybody on this earth, what he sees out of you. And he takes all of the faults and he takes all of the weaknesses and he takes all the work, all of that that comes together and he works them out while he works his love in to our lives. As a sculptor, I w- in school, I would splash water on my clay as I worked to keep it pliable, to keep it, you know, I could keep working it, Right? When it dries out, it gets hard, it, it, it's unworkable, right? But it can always be reconstituted by immersing it in water. Always. It's like God splashing His love onto us all throughout our lives, you know? Working it in, 
keeping us malleable, right? He confronts the wounds and the scars and, the, and, 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 and He works His love into us and he, as we absorb His love and He works all that stuff out of us. And even when we grow dry in certain areas of life or at times in our lives, He reconstitutes us with His love. So if you're sitting here feeling dry this morning, don't worry, you're okay. You're in the right place, <laughs> right? As a matter of fact, we are baptized into His love. We are immersed in it. As if we are hard, dead clay, but He immersed us in His love in the cross of Calvary, and our hearts were made soft and workable again. One more time. Michelangelo, who was really a sculptor and not a painter, if you didn't know that, said, every block of stone has a statue inside it. It's the task of the sculptor to discover it. And he also said about a particular piece of uh, or particular statue, he said, I saw the image of an angel in the marble and I carved until I set it free. Isn't that a great image? He's saying he doesn't really form something out of the rock, but releases the image he sees in the rock. And to do so, he must take away what doesn't belong, which shouldn't be there. An artist drawing erases lines and and smudges which aren't conducive to the portrait that they're drawing, right? Which shouldn't be there, she takes away so the portrait reflects that person sitting in front of her. And God takes away all those things over our lifetimes that are inconsistent with the image that He has for our lives. Maybe all the other people around you can't see the masterpiece which is you. Well, that's their loss, right? Who cares? God sees something different. They look at you and they see only like a hard block of stone. It doesn't matter. God sees beauty in you. Maybe maybe everyone around you only sees the mars and the mistakes. You know, and like the fact that you come to church really late, like my parents, you know, like those kind of... No, I'm just kidding, Mom. You know... It just, who cares? Who cares? Right? God sees potential. What he can make of you. A work in constant progress. Right? That lie that tells you that you're always going to fail. God will chip away. That lie which says you as a woman need the approval of men. God will need that out of you. Everything inconsistent with who God created you to be is taken away. It's taken away. God working it out by working in His love into your life. And that, by the way, is an assurance. It's a promise. Romans 8.29 tells us that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this that He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. How do we start to live in that right self-image right now? Right? Well, firstly, we meet Jesus in our inner sanctum. We actually have the quiet times that we always talk about, but we never really do. Right? We meet Jesus in our inner sanctum, which is really an avenue for healing. It's an avenue for reparation and transformation. 
And as we do, as you, as you go into that inner sanctum, that place that you find and you can meet with Christ and the Scriptures and all that stuff, as you do that, imagine God there embracing you with a big fatherly hug and He says, I'm sorry for the guilt and I'm sorry for the wounds that you've lived with. I'll never do that to you. I love you no matter what. Theoretically, we know these things as adults, but someone has to convince that hurt little kid inside of us whose growth has been stunted and continually lives in the lies. Secondly, we need to practice the presence of God. Right? We need to really truly practice the presence of God. We tend to hyper-spiritualize ourselves in God, and it's simply not true that, our, that God likes our spiritual lives more than our physical bodies. Right? We are body soul and spirit inseparable we are one whole piece right god loves us flesh and blood he loves everything about us we are communities wrapped around bodies which are wrapped around individual souls he's right here he's right here right now think about that an artist may love to work with pastels or work with stone or work with paint but god loves to work in you (laughs) You are His masterpiece. Acts 17, 28, For in Him we live and we move and we have our being. Let's be aware of God's loving presence. A loving presence that is expressed most clearly on Calvary. And it it envelops you even right now. That it, it is all around you. It's closer than your own skin. And He's the atmosphere we swim in. Moment by moment, He fashions you, fully absorbed in shaping that masterpiece which is you right now. So get used to responding to His touch. And as He kneads the lies out of the clay of your life, as He works the warmth of His love into you with strong, experienced sculptor's hands, think about all that. Live in that, right? We're going to practice the presence of God now as we listen to a poem by Terry Churchill uh, found in your animate booklets. There's still some extra ones back there if you want one. But I want you to go sort of this prayerful attitude and listen. You can watch the screen. You can watch that, that uh, sculptor working if you want. Uh, or you can keep your eyes closed and you can just listen as Katie uh, reads for us. And as she does, I want you to think about how God has formed you and is continually forming you right now. Think about the pleasure He takes in His creation, which is your heart. Yeah, so just let the Spirit lead you as you relax your mind and release into this experience. The way you love me. Sometimes I think of you forming me from nothing, shaping tendon and muscle and bone to cover the vulnerable places in me. I think of you, absorbed in the details, using your fingers to tenderly draw the contours of my body. I think of you bending over me, 
to breathe, to breathe life into my lungs, the intimacy of your breath in my mouth. This is how you have loved me. From the moment you dreamed a dream of me. This is how you love me. Even now, as you swim in my veins and whisper in my ear. You are the secret I carry in my body. Father, we thank you for that intimate image. We ask that you would continually speak to us and that we would be responsive to your your forming hands in our hearts. We ask that you would continually loving, love us and that we would recognize that and that we would start to live out of the truth of who you are and who we are in light of that. We pray that you would start to identify those things that are lies, that are not true, of ourselves, of yourself, and that we would start to adjust those things, not only cognitively, not only just knowing them, but actually living them, that they actually become the image that we live out of. Father, as we bring our tithe to you this morning, we pray that you would remind us of your love for us that this would be an act of gratitude for all the things that you've done in us and will continue to do so.